Hello, it's time for another Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and welcome to Davey Wonka and the Bullcrap Factory. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look, and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin Traveling in the world of my creation What we'll see will defy Explanation Lucky for you, it's not a world of my creation Because I'm guessing I would run it like a slightly more benevolent version of Billy Moomy In that It's a Good Life episode of The Twilight Zone But what you're about to hear does indeed defy explanation, and I don't mean for the usual reason of me going on wild tangents on unrelated subjects and pop culture references, although that's bound to happen too. I think it already did. I mean beyond explanation because we're going to explore the imponderable world of government regulation, industry manipulation, and voter frustration, and how it all converges on ground zero, school lunch trays. That's right, like in episode 31 of the Foodcast, during which I transitioned into full food wonk mode as we explored the FDA's exploration of the term healthy on packaged foods, as well as the dietary guidelines for Americans. I again take on the role of Davy Wonka as we take a look at one of the first initiatives by America's new Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, who announced on the 1st of May some changes to the so-called school lunch program. The intent of those changes is to provide greater flexibility to schools in an effort to do what's best for staff, parents, and most importantly, the students. But does it do that? Or is it bullcrap? And that's the perfect puzzle for Davy Wonka to solve. Well, Davy, and perhaps a few helpers. What do you do when you're in a cold war? What kind of planning does that call for? Feed a young man to become a soldier And prop up the farm belt to be sure Give away free lunch at school I know, I know, I said in episode 25, Health Theater, I wouldn't sing again, but I can't help myself. And while that song was an insult to Oompa Loompas everywhere, my spin on the lyrics isn't an insult to history. Because in 1946, the school lunch program got its start with the National School Lunch Act that was supported by the then Department of War, just before the Department of War name changed to the Department of Defense, in recognition of the fact that its mission had changed from defending us to starting wars. Yeah, doesn't make sense to me either. Anyway, the military was worried about having enough healthy recruits to support the conversion of the Cold War to a hot war. And a side benefit was that standardizing meals and distributing them to schools would be a boon to the farming community. The law gave schools money for food and equipment to provide meals, as long as they met standards of participation by needy kids and for minimum nutrition requirements. In 1968, that pinko liberal Richard Nixon learned that the program only fed 30% of the school-age kids in poverty. He declared that the honor of American democracy was at stake and, you're not going to believe this part, worked with Congress to introduce new income guidelines that broadened the net of who was eligible to receive free or subsidized school lunches. In 1984, Big Brother Ronald Reagan, sitting atop his shining city on the hill, slashed the school lunch budget by 25% and gave the savings to the military because feeding kids was no longer as pressing a need as $660 ashtrays and his all-important Star Wars initiative. No, sadly, not that Star Wars initiative. That would have been cool. The reductions forced the transition of meals from institutional mediocrity to industrial monstrosity. 
Kids never wanted to eat either. But since the latter had a supporting cast of salt, sugar, and trans fat, they choked it down. Around this time, creative school districts also learned they could further subsidize their official lunch lines by stocking vending machines off to the side with Cokes, candy, and cakes. Fast forward to 2010. First Lady Michelle Obama became actively involved in legislation in support of her chosen focus of fighting childhood obesity. The resulting bill restored the Reagan-era cuts and adjusted for inflation gave a 50% boost. It also introduced new nutrition standards. Finally, it added a program called the Community Eligibility Provision that removes significant social and administrative barriers for schools with a high population of low-income students. And that brings us to today. The 2010 legislation introduced standards for salt content, whole grains, and other nutrition requirements using a tiered approach with the intention of allowing schools to migrate their food offerings to healthier standards over time. Were they easy targets? No. And this is as good a time as any for our helpers to come back. What do you do when your food tastes like kelp and lower profits makes food companies? Welp engage lobbyists and Congress who yelt, we're from the government, we're here to help. The word on the street is kids don't like the new food and they're just throwing it out. Plus about a million and a half of them just stop buying it. The waste is an obvious problem and losing customers means school systems lose economies of scale and some of the precious government funding because it's partially based on participation rates. So to borrow Ronald Reagan's laugh line of the most terrifying words in the English language, we're from the government and we're here to help. An armored carload of government bureaucrats and their Oompa Loompas head to an elementary school in suburbia USA to provide relief. And that brings us to today. Newly installed Secretary Sonny Perdue announced he would eat lunch at a typical elementary school with students before announcing his proclamation for providing flexibility and relief to the school lunch program. The event wasn't open to the public, but for some reason the USDA believes that the Carmesense media empire has bona fides in this subject and invited me to tag along. I'm sure it was a mistake, but when I RSVP'd on a Friday night, I got a confirmation on a Sunday that it was a go for the next day. Say what you want about the current administration, but the USDA press office was working on a Sunday. I arrived at Catoctin Elementary School 15 minutes before the announcement was to start. Remember that name, Catoctin, C-A-T-O-C-T-I-N. Pronounce like you spell it. As I pulled in front of the school, there was a band of about 30 protesters just off school grounds with signs railing against the upcoming event. Cars passing by honked in support. I wanted to talk to the protesters because I thought they knew something I didn't. You see, there was no pre-release of the announcement, and so I had no idea of its content. I had a fear it was an attack of the aforementioned community eligibility provision that allows schools with large low-income populations to give free lunches to all students regardless of need. The benefits of this is that it removes the stigma of free lunch for the kids but it also has significant cost benefits. If 80% of your student body is getting free lunch, the administrative cost of charging the remaining 20% becomes out of whack. It's cheaper just to let everyone slip through the line. Finally, for Mr. Karma's sense, eat slowly and stop before you're full, it adds precious minutes to an already severely curtailed lunchtime. I didn't take the time to talk to the protesters, though, because I wanted to survey the scene inside. It was a smart move as I got a front row seat on the action. I include pictures and short videos in the show notes. Secretary Purdue started off his time at Catoctin Elementary, remember that name, Catoctin, by getting in line and joining some students for lunch. He was joined by Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas, who leads the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. The kids seemed to enjoy their time with these men and their staff. Next, they came to the podium to address the press. Let's let events speak for themselves for a bit. I won't play the whole thing. 
I'll come in every once in a while to editorialize. If you want to hear the whole thing, I have a link on the show notes. Well, thank you all for being here today at uh, uh, Chocton Elementary. Excuse me, where? Uh, Chocton Elementary. I know I'm being picky and I have no room to criticize, but if you want to seem sincere, you should learn how to pronounce the school you're going to. I think you saw a little enthusiasm out there among the fifth graders, and we appreciate very much your being here today. And uh, in conjunction with uh, School Nutrition Employee Week, we're here today celebrating the hard work that our school nutritional professionals do in schools like this all across the country every day to provide nutritious and appealing meals to students uh, everywhere. You know, the hard work of the people here who provide those nutritious meals serve an example for us. Just like we want healthy children, uh, this is an important part of that. And uh, when the the new standards were proposed, uh, what it was put in place and the Medical Institute indicated that we should look and review this and to, and to measure how these school, how these nutrition standards are being accepted and whether we need to change or not. So. Uh, I can assure you we've been hearing from a lot of parents, students, and uh, food service professionals that, uh, uh, about how we could do better in this regard. I've gotten some uh, particular encouragement from uh, one particular expert on lunch. This is a 12-year-old granddaughter of a childhood friend of mine when he told her what uh, the USDA secretary did and what they were responsible for, including the student nutrition program. Uh, she knew me and said, well, great, Grandpa. I hope Mr. Sonny can make school lunches great again. Okay, three comments so far. Secretary Purdue refers to the Medical Institute. I assume he's talking about the Institute of Medicine, now known as the National Academy of Medicine, who provided the input for the 2010 school lunch requirements. The Academy's recommendation does propose a phased approach that calls for evaluation and possibly adjustment during each phase, And so he's right that what they're doing is compliant with the intent of the original bill. Second, he refers to plenty of anecdotal evidence about talking to people and hearing stories. And while those are important, policy should be informed by data and not stories. As you continue to listen, are you hearing stories or data? And finally, really, make school lunches great again? I can only speak for myself. The Edison, New Jersey lunch program was never great. Did anyone ever think their school lunch was great? And that's not a knock on the people who put the lunches together. They do the best they can with what they have. But really, great? As much as these hardworking professionals do, we want to give them the flexibility to make them not only nutritious, but palatable where the kids want to come and enjoy a great school meal. So that's why we're here. And uh, these changes are not undertaken lightly. It's a uh, result of feedback from schools, school nutritional professionals, parents, and others around the, around the issue. So the USDA is taking steps to provide more flexibility, more input from our local uh, uh, people. We all know that meals can't be nutritious if they aren't consumed, if they're put in the trash. And that's really, we've got to balance the nutritional aspect, the sodium content, the whole grain content, with the palatability. And uh, we know that kids are pretty, uh, pretty outspoken about what they want to eat and what they don't and how we can balance those two. And that's what our school professionals deal, deal with every day. Now, you can't argue with the spirit of what the secretary is saying. Kids need to eat the nutritious food they're given. If this is truly an effort to balance, that's fine. Balancing doesn't mean giving the students chocolate-covered bacon and ranch chiefs puffs. Ah. Chocolate-covered bacon and ranch cheese puffs, a food that's easier to eat than to say. It means make the green beans good enough to where you want to eat them. And I'll admit that if you're going to serve me a canned green bean with no flavor enhancement, I don't want to eat it. But flavor enhancement doesn't need to be a crap load of salt. Could be a little bit of salt. Could be some other kind of herbs and spices. The secretary also starts to introduce the changes that he's proposing. They have to do at least with sodium and whole grain content. And uh, we're also hearing that the cost of compliance in some of these areas, particularly uh, procurement of whole grains and others, whether it's pasta or other things, dealing with whole grains is, uh, is more problematic in that way. In fact, what, what I've just been told by Patty is that over a million, like 1.4 million children, are not uh, participating in school lunch programs in the nutritious meals that are 
that are provided. Oh yeah, and the money. Don't forget the money. It costs more to buy whole grain foods. It also has a shorter shelf life, so you need to be careful what you buy because you don't want to add to the alleged waste burden. The other statement here is that 1.4 million kids dropped out of the school lunch program. This figure is based on extrapolation from a study by the Government Accountability Office, or GAO. That study was done with eight school districts in eight states, so a pretty good sample. A study that also admits that it can't tie the changes specifically to the Michelle Obama led changes. But those changes are significant, so it's a good guess. Yet, I didn't have to work too hard to find a different study from the University of Washington, Go Huskies, which found only a 1% difference in pre- and post-implementation participation. So even if there are differences in participation rate, clearly there are other variables that can prevent the abandon rate. And with the lack of data on those differences, how can you know the changes you're going to make are going to be the right ones. What if it makes things worse? The GAO report even says that it may take some adjustment for students to get used to the changes. It's insulting when bureaucrats proudly point to a source as a proof of a viewpoint, but brush off the rest of the report when it casts doubts on that viewpoint. Here's what we're doing. After listening to the feedback, suggestions from students, parents, and food service professionals, uh, USDA is taking the step of providing flexibility around whole grain uh, percentages. Uh, we're at 50% now. There was a thought of going to 100%. That's found to be rather problematic in the, the procurement, as I indicated. Also in the stringent sodium steps uh, going forward there. We're not going to, we're going to leave it level one for this next year and see how that works. And then the, also the, the thing that I heard the most, and I can identify with this because uh, I wouldn't be as big as I am today without chocolate milk. And the kids told me that the, uh, the flavored milk, which was limited to non-fat, was not as uh, tasty as they would like. So we're allowing 1% uh, flavored milk in, the, in our school lunch program. And now we're at the heart of the matter. The original Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of 2010 mandated that by the 2014-2015 school year, 100% of the grain products offered had to be whole grains. That meant whole grain bread, brown rice, and as you'll find out, some things that were affronts to local custom. But ever since, Congress moved the goalpost back with every year's appropriation bill so that through the 2017 school year, the 50% level remained. Also, with each year, Congress offered school districts an exemption program that would be administered by the states. The exemption program didn't allow school districts the ability to roll back what they already achieved but it didn't force progress either. The new proclamation extended the ability to avoid whole grains, even at the 50% level, through the exemption program for one more school year. Then there's sodium. As listeners of the previous episode of the Foodcast know, the USDA's very own Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommend no more than 2,300 milligrams of sodium per day, even for adults. The upper limit for younger kids ranges from 1,500 to 2,200 milligrams per day. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the typical American child gets 3,300 milligrams per day, which is 40 to 60% more than recommended depending on their age. In examining the proposed changes, I'll just look specifically at changes for kids in elementary school and only for lunch, but the laws have different ranges depending on age and whether the meal is breakfast or lunch. For elementary school kid lunch, the target through the current school year was less than 1,230 milligrams. Keeping in mind that for younger kids in elementary school, that's already two-thirds of their daily limit just for lunch. For older kids, it's still more than half. The big news here is that for the upcoming school year, the target became less than 935 milligrams or a 25% reduction. This is still getting almost half the daily upper limit in one meal. The proposed change is to keep the upper limit at the current level that allows a school to serve one meal with, according to the USDA, two-thirds of a kid's daily salt intake. Then their secretary produced beloved chocolate milk. The Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act allowed unflavored milk, either fat-free or 1% fat. It also allowed flavored milk, as in chocolate or strawberry, but those had to be fat-free. 
Secretary-produced proclamation now allowed flavored milk with 1% fat. But his anecdote about not being as big as he is without chocolate milk falls a little flat. You all know that I'm all in on sophomoric humor, but I avoid joke about people's appearance. Believe me, it'd be easy, too easy, to make a joke linking the color of an Oompa Loompa skin to our presidents. When Secretary Perdue says he's big, he doesn't mean tall or muscular. His physicians no doubt advise him to lose a lot of weight. He's the cover boy why schools shouldn't be serving high-calorie beverages at all. Mr. Secretary, if you're looking to take your doctor's advice, give me a call. I'd love to help you be healthy, be happy, and... Oh yeah, save the world! Oh, and it's worth noting one more thing about milk in the school lunch program. According to Chris Galen, a senior vice president of communications for the National Milk Producers Federation, motto, only cows can legally make milk, we've seen a reduction of milk consumption in schools because of this policy. This is a nutrition problem that hopefully this change will help to address. We'll talk more about the impact to the milk business later in this episode. But for now, that's the summary of what this hullabaloo is about. Grain, salt, milk. I asked some people in, in researching this of whether to do this or not, I asked some people last week in, a, in Washington, well, uh, how do you think what we were doing was working? And they said, well, it's working great. And I said, well, how do you know? And they said, well, 99% of the schools are compliant, or at least compliant. And I don't know about you, but only in Washington can a program be called a success simply because schools are doing what they're ordered to do by the federal government upon the threat of federal uh, funds being withheld. So I don't necessarily view compliance as a necessary standard. We want to take these kids, their parents, and the school professionals into account to make sure we're providing not only nutritious, but nutritious and palatable meals. So uh, just because 99% are compliant doesn't give you... uh, Uh, doesn't uh, answer the question for me. The Secretary's point is that there's two sides of the equation. There's implementing the standard, and there's consumer acceptance. He asked an open-ended question on progress and focused on an answer that only discussed the implementation piece. We don't know if or what those people in Washington, of which he is one, said about the acceptance side. And while I see his point, about only in Washington is a 99% compliance rate a success for something the government requires? Keep in mind that that's a 99% adherence to standards that have been rolled back, such as with grains, or are not terribly aggressive anyway, such as with sodium. So I call Mr. Purdue's only in Washington is 99% a success when adherence is mandated, and I raise him an only in Washington is 99% a success when you lower the bar so it can be achieved. Obviously, I'm afraid, as in any decision like this, there may be critics. But I want to assure those of you who are concerned that we are reversing uh, nutritional standards. No way. Tom asked this question. He's got some questions from parents. We're not unwinding. We're not winding back any nutritional standards at all. We're giving these, these professionals, these food service professionals, the flexibility to move as we get a healthier generation. Obviously, food is a huge important of our healthiness. We know that we've got obesity problems. I applaud First Lady Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama for addressing those obesity problems uh, in the past, but it also has to do with exercise. I have 14 grandchildren, and I can tell you, uh, we do everything we can, not only to feed them healthy, but also to get their uh, other, other things other than their fingers exercised on those screens, and that's important as well. And now Davy H. brings you deep into the heart of the bullcrap factory, because this exercise is important thing is right from the playbook of the Sugar Association. Motto, Diabetes. The Sugar Association, who was caught last year along with Coca-Cola surreptitiously funding scientists to make the claim that it's not diet, it's exercise even though study after study shows that diet is the biggest determinant of obesity and not exercise. Exercise is important, especially for kids, but not as a weight management tool. Its health benefits go deeper than that. So listen to your friendly neighborhood gym bro. He knows what he's talking about when he says, Abs are made in the kitchen, bro, and not the gym. 
This deflection to exercise is a dog whistle to placate big food in the healthcare industrial complex. The other point in that segment is the real impact of the change. It's a correct assessment to say that it's not a reversal. It opens the door to a reversal, but in itself is not one. Except with the milk change. Maybe I don't understand the law that well, but to me, allowing a higher calorie beverage that was formerly forbidden is a reversal. Yeah, bullcrap factory. What the, what the idea actually boils down to local flexibility and trusting the people in the lunchrooms across America to do the right thing. I think they're just like parents across America. They want to provide a wholesome, healthy meal for these kids, and we want to help them do that. So it means giving them the option, locally and state, the option of doing what we're doing here today. They're not mandates on our schools. If they want to proceed in doing that, if they think they can proceed on to higher sodium, more stringent sodium standards, or higher whole grain standards, they're welcome to do that if they're getting good results in that way. So we want to make sure that we, uh, uh, we provide a good, healthy, healthy meal and uh, sign a breakfast or a proclamation to make sure we not only is nutritious and healthy, but it tastes good too. So thank you very much. The important part of that segment was Secretary Purdue's deference to local people in the schools making the right decision. We get a little more detail into that from Senator Pat Roberts, who said a few words after Mr. Purdue signed the proclamation. But we'll get to that in a minute. To quote the original Willy Wonka, We have so much time and so little to see. Wait a minute. Strike that. Reverse it. Thank you. We join Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas, leader of the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, in his speech in progress. When you run the numbers, you find out we're wasting about a third of the food that we serve in our school lunches. Uh, by wasting, I mean it's a tragedy that this food uh, uh, simply cannot be used simply because of choice. So we worked really hard the last two years to provide the flexibility, uh, but as I said, after a unanimous bipartisan bill, uh, our effort did uh, stall. So the policies that our secretary has declared here today will provide flexibility to ensure that schools are available to serve nutritious meals that kids will really eat. Senator Roberts is talking about the success of the program on the consumer side and speaks broadly about waste. Not a lot of detail. Waste is a legit problem. Kids take the peas because they're forced to. They're not allowed to turn it down. But what about the peas? But if those peas get deposited directly from the tray to the trash, that's a tragedy, not to mention an alliteration. Is the waste problem real? It's a hard thing to measure. One would need to look at what gets eaten before and after the implementation of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. A University of Vermont study, Go Catamounts. What's a catamount? Nothing without a calculator. A University of Vermont study tried to figure that out. What they found was that because children are forced to do it, they took 29% more fruits and vegetables. But their consumption went down 13% after the mandate took effect. And they were throwing away 56% more. Here's an interesting fact. The kids in that study didn't even taste the produce. Since the new proclamation focuses on palatability, is taste the problem? Maybe the problem is forcing a kid to take vegetables when it was previously an option. A different study from Harvard, Go Crimson. Crimson? What? Your mascot can't just be a color. You can't force some student to wear a costume that's a color, no matter how smart you are. And when they do make a kid wear a costume, it's John Harvard the Pilgrim. Does Harvard ever play Virginia Tech whose mascot is a turkey? That'd be rich. A different study from Harvard that used a pretty gross methodology that included going through the trash found no change in fruit consumption and actually found vegetable consumption to rise by 16%. But both studies still found a lot of waste, a minimum of 40%. And food waste is such a big problem you can be sure I'll do a separate food cast on that subject. Waste needs to be solved. Maybe letting kids have salted peas and white flour biscuits will help. But based on what Harvard found, there's other ways to crack the waste nut. 
which, in deference to Dave Barry, Crack the Waste Nut would be an excellent name for a rock and roll band. Now, if they don't eat it, what happens is that they go hungry, more hungry, then they end up in a fast food uh, you know, franchise, nothing against fast food, but they'll eat twice as much. And that's just absolutely contrary to what we're trying to do with uh, nutritious meals. Because that is really what these programs are about, serving meals to hungry children so they can learn and grow. You know what I love about Senator Roberts? His prairie land twang is just made for storytelling. And that's what he's doing. He's talking about the hypothetical kids, many of whom can't afford to pay for their school lunch. Yet they go to McDonald's and drop a 10 spot on twice as much food. Many of these kids are part of the backpack lunch program in which, through the help of other organizations, they bring a backpack to school that gets filled with food meant to be brought home for the entire family. And I want to thank Pastor Michelle Thomas of the Holy and Whole Ministry for providing me that information. I also want to apologize for saying a four-letter word in her presence. What can I say, Pastor Michelle? Once a blue devil, always a blue devil. We'll take some questions. I'm going to ask the chairman to stand up. We also got the CEO of the uh, of the school nutrition people here, the uh, 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 Patty uh, Benavieu, uh, Montague there, CEO of School Nutrition Association. They represent over 57,000 school nutritionists across the country, and uh, she's the real expert here. So some of those questions you may want to direct to her, but I'll be happy to uh, answer any for you as well. Winded back essentially. Are there any specific changes that were made under the Obama administration that are changing as part of these new standards? No, we're just slowing down the process. And what uh, the medical institute, when they talked about some of these suggestions, said, uh, go to tier one and evaluate and see how it's received. And and this is what we're doing. We're not backing up. We're not winding up anything uh, backward in that area. We are simply slowing down and judging. Uh, adjudicating school nutrition programs to be compliant at the tier one level and at the 50% whole grain level. Are there any specifics though that were made under the last administration you felt specifically went too far? Uh, no, I think the progression is what we're trying to give us some more time to evaluate. It may not be too far. We don't know that yet. We do know, as Senator Roberts said, we are having some uh, uh, palatability, acceptance issues in the in the sodium uh, side and the whole grain side. Even the school nutrition, nutrition uh, pro, uh, professionals are having trouble procuring a whole grain pasta, for instance, and those kind of things. And and Patty can talk more to, about that than uh, from a uh, specific purpose. This is a legitimate response. Isolate the proclamation, and all they're doing is delaying. There seems to be real reasons to support a delay. The bureaucrats are using a jump to conclusion, Matt, by depending on anecdotal evidence on palatability and costs, etc., and not data. But if they use this time that they've given themselves to actually gather data, I don't quarrel with this. The question is, who's going to hold their feet to the fire? Mr. Secretary, you addressed this to a degree, but what do you say to some of those parents who are protesting outside who think that this will reduce nutrition standards for those kids who can need support and those are the ones on the free and reduced lunches, they're not going to go out and buy fast food if they haven't finished their school lunch. So what do you say to that person? I trust you all as media professionals to convey to them exactly what I said earlier. This is not reducing nutritional standards whatsoever. It's pausing here to evaluate whether or not the progressive standards of moving even further are appropriate or not. So we're not reversing any type of nutritional standards. The meal they get and the caloric intake and the nutrition capacity of that is going to be just as great, and we hope it'll be even more palatable. Excuse me, you are changing the milk standard. But let's hear this next question from this incredibly erudite guy wearing the tinfoil hat. None on my part, you know, I've, uh, I've really, that most important constituent is who I hear from, and I've got 14 grandchildren, as I said, in public school, and they, uh, they, uh, they've informed me as well. So uh, that's an anecdotal evidence, but again, the evidence collected across regarding waste and throwing away, as Senator Roberts indicated, we're seeing more trays thrown out 
and more less food eaten, which is not what we want. If you couldn't hear that question, I asked about industry's influence on the proclamation. Oh, if you could see his face while he was porky-pigging his way through the uhs and ums just prior to denying that he at least wasn't influenced by industry, and then tugging at the heartstrings with his 14 grandchildren. It was a sight to see. If Secretary Purdue's boss can make America's factories as productive as the bullcrap factory was that day, he'll have satisfied a major campaign promise. And it wasn't just me who thought that. I talked to one of my fellow journalists. (laughs) I got to say fellow journalists. I talked to one of my fellow journalists, and she pretty much detected that as well. And the superintendent of schools came up to ask me more about that question because he thought there was something behind it. Who? Me? I can speak to that if you want to. Sure. I have the privilege of being the chairman of the House, pardon me, Senate Agriculture Committee, and uh, oh, the whole grains. Uh, Try eating a biscuit made out of whole grains, or if that matter, if you're from the South, uh, some grits. (laughs) Or uh, I I mean, it it just doesn't work. And so, on occasion, uh, we can substitute something else that would be more palatable, as the secretary has put it. So the kids will eat it. This is letting local school nutritionists and local folks just have a little flexibility with the food that they're serving so that more kids will not go hungry. If I really was Davy Wonka, owner-operator of the Bullcrap Factory, this local needs thing would be the one and only point I'd make. Whole wheat biscuits just aren't biscuits. Whole corn grits have disgusting black flakes in them. Forcing Southerners to eat whole corn grits is akin to them cooking with instant grits. No self-respecting Southerner uses instant grits. There's much a part of local food culture as rice in Asia and waffles in Belgium, and you're not about to get Japanese people to embrace brown rice or Flemings to eat whole wheat waffles. Those same kind of local traditions need to be honored in our own local communities. There are other reasons for pushing control down to the locality, having to do with access and distribution and all that food system wonkistry I love and you have to tolerate. But to Senator Roberts' point, on occasion doesn't mean you give a pass every day. Also, taste can change. It's why we're eating so much of the garbage that wasn't available in Grandma's time. I'm going to let Patty address some of this. Patty Montague is the CEO for our school nutrition professionals, and you had some specific questions, I think, earlier that she probably can address better than I can. But first, I'd like to say thank you to uh, Secretary Purdue and Senator Roberts for uh, supporting school nutrition professionals and the programs and providing the flexibility that the school nutrition uh, professionals need to be able to prepare and serve appealing meals to kids. And we want to work, we look forward to working with both of you to uh, share our research and the feedback we get from our members to help strengthen these programs. So, and I'll take any other questions. I'm just curious how rolling this back makes the food taste better. It's, you're not, well, I'm not rolling it back. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you very much because. Now that's what I meant to say. You're not rolling anything back. So how does that make the food taste better? Okay. It has to do with the sodium content. Um, it does change the palatability and the taste of the food. We hear stories from students, from our, from our members, about students that bring salt shakers, contraband salt shakers, and ketchup and other items into the school to provide a more flavor to their meals, and they sell it to their friends. And if you look at uh, a study came out in the fall from Pew and Robert Woods Johnson that said 60% of school nutrition professionals still said they were having issues with implementing, implementing these standards. And so we do the research, other organizations that are working on school nutrition, so they just need more time is what we're asking for here. Did you ever imagine a black market on school salt shakers in elementary school? Let me tell you, if the worst thing I had to face in my high school bathroom was some kid pushing packets of Taco Bell hot sauce, I'd have felt a lot safer. (laughs) Our uh, members pay membership dues, and then we have... uh, about advertising and magazines and exhibits, just like any other professional organization. There goes tinfoil hat guy again, asking questions about nefarious industry organizations that might really be behind the School Nutrition Association. But we can rest assured, based on Miss Montague's response, that it's funded by nutritionists with some superficial support of sponsors. The problem is, 
They get significant funding from ConAgra, PepsiCo, Soma Foods, one of the country's biggest suppliers of chicken nuggets, and the National Dairy Council, who isn't so happy that the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act may be causing a reduction in milk consumption. Here. How do you go uh, forward measuring the success of the program? What are the indicators that you're looking for? Okay. Well, I measure it by uh, uh, speaking with school nutrition professionals across the, uh, across the country. I imagine Senator Roberts and I will continue to speak with young people consuming these meals. They're ultimate consumers. And uh, what do we do? We're going to look for, again, a sound science base. As I indicated, the Medical Institute said, move this first step and then evaluate it. Because just as we said all along, if it's not being consumed, if it's not palatable, and they're going by a fast food restaurant or a convenience store, then we've, uh, we've lost the battle. So we'll continue to evaluate we're, we're probably going to measure some waste standards, some uh, usability standards in schools and ask our professionals to, uh, uh, to either uh, have some way. We don't overburden them, but I'm a, I'm a facts-based decision maker. I'd like real quantifiable numbers. If it's appropriate for me to have a man crush, I have one on that fellow journalist, there I go again, who asked about hard data. And Secretary Purdue led once again with anecdotal evidence of I spoke to dot dot dot. But then he says he's a data-driven fella, and that's what they'll use this lifeline for. I think as citizens, the best we can do is hold their feet to the fire, that they put the measurements in place, and that they give us full transparency into the methods and results of that data. What do you think? Okay. Thank you all very much. Patty, what did you all serve today? Uh, I believe they had cows. They did have calzones and chicken nuggets and salad. Okay, thank you. Very good. good. Yeah, delicious. Very good. Are they compliant with the current standard? Who is that a-hole? Yes, they are. Ninety-nine percent compliance. I'm a clean my plate club guy today. And so ends the formal event. But you're still stuck in the middle of the bullcrap factory. I still want to talk to some protesters. And I aim to give you my bottom line assessment. Where are those helpers to move things along when we need them? What do you do when you run out of time and you can't drum up another dumb rhyme? Yeah, I need to get this episode done, and you've probably had enough of this lame bit, so let's move on. I headed outside to see if I could catch any of the protesters. There were some hangers-on, but I couldn't get a good recording anyway. The gist of what I heard was confusion. The government brought this confusion on itself, because they swept in with little notice and no prior indication of what they were going to announce. Again, at this point, we're also primed for the outrage reaction. People were mobilized to protest something that we knew nothing about. There's a lot of misconceptions out there, such as Secretary Purdue being part of the giant Purdue chicken conglomerate that's a pervasive torturer of them a-hole birds throughout the East Coast. He's not. People also assumed we were adding sugar back onto the plates, and I suppose indirectly we are, with a lower reliance on whole grains and a greater incentive to drink sweet milk. But the Fed can rightfully say they didn't touch the sugar restriction. One protester who I spoke to on the phone a few days afterwards... Someone who is worth holding this episode up for is the mayor of the town in which Catoctin Elementary School Catoctin Elementary School is located. Kelly Burke not only is the mayor of Leesburg, Virginia, she is a special education teacher in the school system for over 30 years. Let's see what she has to say. What brought you to the protest? Well, I actually came as a former special ed teacher because um, I've, I've seen firsthand the impact between healthy foods and learning. Uh, you know, when a kid's hungry, it's hard to concentrate. Well, when a kid's high on sugar, it's equally hard to concentrate. And I'll always object to any change in school lunches that allows the change to lower the standards that, you know, salt and sugar should increase would be, to me, a, a, a very, it's a wrong direction to go. I mean, I've taught in schools where they had Coke machines and candy machines in the cafeteria, and, and I remember that. I I know what the result of that was. I don't want to see us go back to that. But I think our students need and should be provided healthy foods to build their, their minds and their bodies, and that should be the role of, of the school lunch. Loudoun County School Board 
appears to be in favor of these changes. Did you have any interaction with them prior in, as your role in mayor based on you having a different opinion? I did not. This came as a huge surprise. And uh, I don't know how long it had been going on, how long it had been planned, but we only found out about it at the very last minute. So, no, I haven't had any discussions with any school board people on regard to it, although I plan to. One final question for you. Now that the actual announcement is out during the protest, you didn't have the opportunity of knowing what the announcement would be. Now that it's out, what is your... I'm still uh, unhappy with the results. I don't think this is a good thing to do. The secretary's response that, that these are minor changes, I don't think I don't think that's a, a, an accurate description of, of the changes that are being proposed. And I, I suspect, although I don't know, I suspect that this is just the beginning, and that concerns me greatly. I do want to say that any time the schools have an opportunity to have someone like the Secretary of Education come to their facility is great to have, you know, someone at a high level come and talk to the kids. That's that's a wonderful experience. But to have have them come and sign uh, some legislation that negatively impacts the kids, I think, was, was not a very good use of the facility and the kids themselves. Thank you for your time. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. It was yeah. very nice speaking with you. Same here. Thank you. What Mayor Burke implied and is way too polished to say is this stuff where you're all about moving decisions into the hands of the local people doesn't really hold water when you swoop into town with great fanfare and little announcement and don't allow the real constituents to have a say. As citizens, we need to do like Mayor Burke, stand tall and have respect for ourselves. If we let people walk all over us now, they'll be walking over us for the rest of our lives. My final thoughts are next. If you listen to the words, Sunny Purdue's Department of Agriculture is doing the right thing. I really do believe it's in the best interest of the students to put control of the school lunch program in the hands of experienced, skilled, and motivated nutrition professionals who are close to the ground and know their local food scene and know their customers. Furthermore, when you look at the changes in isolation and from the standpoint of nutrition, here's how things shake out. 100% whole grain compliance would be nice, but as I said, cultural norms need to change before you'll get acceptance. The federal government can't manage that, and the occasional dollop of white flour isn't going to hurt a kid. The key is occasional. Hey, Kansans, hold Senator Roberts accountable for that. We're watching you. Regarding salt, as discussed in episode 33 of the Foodcast, The evidence doesn't support that high sodium levels are as harmful to people who don't already have high blood pressure as many believe, especially when that sodium is mitigated with a balance of potassium intake. If a shake or two or salt gets a kid to eat Miss Piddlin's peas, then that might be a worthwhile trade-off. The problem is that, more than likely, the salt will be used to make the styrofoam McNuggets more palatable, which hooks the kids on the salty flavor and increases their craving for the McNuggets at the fast food restaurant that Senator Roberts says he wants to keep kids from, but the kids who can go will go, whether or not you fed them in school. Salt addiction is hard to wean yourself off of. When you get used to low-salt food prepared fresh and with care, you actually begin to prefer it. And that's personal experience talking. Even the milk standard, that I fully believe is the result of an annoyed milk lobby, isn't as bad as it seems for healthy kids. Like salt, saturated fat by itself is not bad for us. Fat does add calories, but the difference between a fat-free cup of milk and a cup of 1% milk is 20 calories. You burned off 20 calories when you hit the 15-second fast-forward button on your phone as soon as I started singing. If the milk producers add fat, but remove some of the sugar in the flavored milk, that could be a worthwhile trade-off. On the other hand, kids don't need milk. Milk's biggest benefits are protein, available through many other sources, calcium, available through many other sources, and vitamin D, which isn't naturally occurring in milk, so it could just as well be obtained through other fortified foods or by going outside. So wearing my Davy H nutrition hat instead of my Davy Wonka food wonk hat, nutritionally, if these really are temporary measures, They're not a big deal. But that's looking at them in isolation. This isn't the government's first time to lower the bar. The superficial reasons for this flexibility are super fishy when you look at it in the light of quick implementation 
anecdotal evidence over limited real data, minimal transparency as to who's driving the change, and an administration that hasn't proven itself to be looking out for low-income people, many of whom are recent immigrants. If Secretary Perdue and his Oompa Loompas would have just stuck with the old conservative line of moving decision-making to local authorities, if they would have copped to the fact that these are changes that help business as well as schools, parents, and kids, I wouldn't be uncomfortable with what was done. But here in the bullcrap factory, I'm feeling like Lucy Ricardo on the chocolate candy line. The problem now becomes, what can we do? If you have the means to hold your local school board accountable, to make sure that the people administering school lunch programs are experienced, are skilled, and most important, are motivated, that's all you can do. Oh, and vote the bums out if you don't like them. And so we bring episode 34 of the Karma Sense Foodcast to a close. Thanks so much for your attention. I want to thank Pastor Michelle Thomas at Holy and Whole Ministries and Leesburg Mayor Kelly Burke for helping me with this episode. I have information about both on the show notes. I know I'm a day late with this episode, and I hope you agree it was worth the wait. If you do, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, and or let your friends know about this massive celebration of food, nutrition, the people who bring food to us, the people who influence our food decisions, and the endless number of movies, songs, TV shows, and other irrelevant pop culture references I can weave into the program. If you don't think it was worth it, I'll also take a review, and understand if you choose to share it with an enemy instead. And with that, let's wrap things up by remembering what your old pals, the Oompa Loompas, always say. As an elephant eats. What are you at getting terribly fat? What do you think will come of that? I don't like the look of it. Oompa, loompa, doompa dee da. If you're not greedy, you will go far. You will live in happiness too. Like the oompa, loompa, doompa dee doo. Doo-ba-dee-doo.